I mean, I'm sure you, at this point, you've pulled the trigger before and there's a good chance that you hit somebody on the other side. But the very first time that you're, that you're in that position and you've got somebody squarely in your crosshairs, were you asking yourself, can I really do this? So I'll give you, I'll give you my perspective was, like I said, that first deployment was very, very kinetic, as they say, chaotic deployment. We were getting in gunfights all the time. I mean, it was just, if you were there and I don't care what unit you were in or what your job was, if you were driving the, the chow truck, you saw a lot of combat, you know what I'm saying? Um, so I had that experience in a chaotic sense. So I'll flash forward to then 2007 when I'm back in Ramadi. So it's a completely different time and place now. This is during the Al-Ambar awakening. Um, we're starting to make some headway. A lot of the Sunni tribes have then turned against what was um, originally uh, uh, ISI and then Al-Qaeda in Iraq, all those groups, because you had um, some some folks, uh, what was his name, the Jordanian guy already, uh, Zarqawi uh, was running that and he was going around killing, you know, sheikhs and other tribal leaders. And they were like, well, we don't like the Americans being here, but we definitely don't want that. So they ended up coming over and siding with us. And we started this whole process, right? So it was a different time and place. And there was, you know, we were out on a mission and we're set up, uh, we'd go to a home at that time for as long as we can, 24 to 48 hours when it got into really, really hot summer months, you could only bring so much water and stuff. So, and exhaustion would set in, but, but we were out there for a couple of days and cities like dead quiet. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, it's just that, that hot, you're just sweat through everything. Uh, you're in this house, you've got your, your position set up where you can see, um, at this point we had different tactics of how we would do it. This one had a family in it, but they had like a connected house. They were staying in it. So we just made sure we kept an eye and said, all right, you know, don't go anywhere. You know, it was kind of, it was hit or miss on how we did it, but that's a whole nother story. Um, and this one was just, like I said, it's dead quiet. So we're looking out, it's just nothing nothing all day long. I mean, literally at this point, we're like, man, there's not even a car on the street. Like what's going on? So there's something odd. There's something up. Just don't know what it is yet. Right. Then all of a sudden we hear one burst of fire, not far away. Like this has got to be within a couple hundred meters. Then another burst, like a hundred meters away. And then another burst. And then all of a sudden, like the city erupts and we're like, okay, here we go. It's on. I mean, it's on. And then just like you talk about, there we are. I'm I'm on the gun, right? Waiting. I'm checking because we don't know the situation, but we're not getting shot at, but there is a lot of gunfire, right? So at that point, because of all of our experience and how many times we had been shot at, it wasn't, we weren't like super amped up yet. We're just waiting to see what happens. And what do I see? Guy coming out with an AK-47 and he's poking his head around the, you know, around the corner, just looking around the wall, looking around the wall. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And he wasn't looking at us, but I didn't know what he was looking at. So right there, you're looking through the scope about there's gunfire going off. He has an AK-47. He's not in any type of police or military uniform, right? But at the same time, it's it's Iraq. Everyone's got yeah. an AK-47, right? That doesn't mean anything on its own. And he starts to bring up that rifle. And you're having that. That's right there because the situation was not there that I wasn't presented with some obvious target here. I it wasn't someone shooting. It wasn't someone attacking me. It wasn't that it was just, dude, am I going to kill this guy? Am I going to end this guy's life right now? And then I'm having this doubt about it, not about killing someone, but 
what if I do this and, and it's this guy didn't deserve to die and, and I get in a whole bunch of trouble for it, right? Well, what, what's that? Because you, you have that power and that authority. You have to be the one to make those decisions on the ground. And I sat there for just a second, just, I mean, literally finger on the trigger. I'm thinking about it right now. I'm like literally sweating from the heat, just thinking about this story. And I'm looking at the guy and nothing about him said, I'm about to go fight someone. I'm trying to kill someone. Just nothing was there. And that's why I was so hesitant. And he picked up that AK and he started firing it in the air. And then we heard more and more and more. Turns out Iraq just won a soccer game. And everyone in that city, everyone in that city was pretty, who had any access to a television was watching that game. And when they won, it was celebration time. And they celebrated by firing AKs into the air. So this guy who had no idea that I was even there had no idea I was looking at him through the scope of a rifle, almost died, almost bled out on the street because he was celebrating a soccer game. I mean, like, it's just all the emotions are coming back right now. I'm feeling it. You're just like, holy crap. Like that stuff to me was always is always more difficult than you're in a gunfight and people are trying to kill you. Like that's pretty, pretty primal, pretty basic. Um, And if you have the appropriate training, you can get through those situations when it's something in there where you're not sure when that little bit of doubt creeps in, oh man, that's, that's when that heart starts racing. All along, you wanted to go into the infantry. You ended up in airborne, obviously part of the infantry. Was, w- would you say on the whole, your experience was what you thought it was going to be? Or did it exceed or fall short of your expectations? I don't think you can... You can expect whatever you want, but I don't think what you expect is ever what you get, right? It's what you make of it. It's about when you put yourself so far out on a limb, what happens next? And no one knows because no one went that far out on a limb or the last person that did left and stayed gone. And so for me, I didn't have anyone in the military. I'm in Iowa, right? And so this war says that I should join and I want to join. I want to participate. And I think I like hitting people a little bit, and so maybe the infantry is probably more for me. And then the opportunity of we can go anywhere in the world sounds really neat. And, but it was never one thing or the other. But I think what actually shaped, obviously, my community growing up, but what shaped me who I am in the military was my leaders, right? Those that take you under the wing and say, don't do this and you can do this. See this, this is right, this is wrong. Uh, those that say show up at 5.45 and they're there, they're there at 5.30, right? Those that set the precedence. And I, that, is, that is what I saw in Italy. When I showed up to Italy, I actually met uh, 1,200 combat infantrymen, and they all had a little star on their airborne wings because they jumped into Iraq March 26, 2003. I did, I've done a million push-ups because I didn't jump into Iraq March 26, 2003 with them. I was in high school. Sorry, I couldn't get out, and I joined as soon as I could. But it's about creating that legacy, right? It's always bigger than the individual. And I think that's what makes the military so powerful is that it's not what I can do for me. It's what I can do for you. Right. And what the person next to you can do for you and what the person on the other side can do for us. And all of a sudden, when we start looking out for so many people around us, we become better. It is truly a, a, a team. And we, we do incredible things that are otherwise unexplainable without the idea of a team that is willing to sacrifice it all. Todd, we, we sit here on a, on a Sunday and Memorial Day, and I'm standing on the backs of giants. I've seen the biggest, the fastest, the bravest, the most selfless people that we could ever meet. And they're not here with us. I've walked with them in the mountains of Afghanistan and 
and they're not here. They never had the chance to have a wife or children. And I know what it means because I am enjoying it now at this point in my life. Ten years later, I get to sit here and know that there's no better life than we have right now. And the only thing that I can attribute this great life to is those that gave everything, every single one of their tomorrows for our today. And they do it, they did it so we can have every single today we get to enjoy. It's something so powerful, this idea of service. And I never understood it until the military told me that we are better together than we are separate. Your actions on Iwo Jima are well documented. Your actions are marine folklore. Um, your humility about the whole thing uh, is, I mean, just as American as it should be. And one of the things that, you know, so I, I want to encourage everyone to, you know, to go study the details uh, because it's so well documented. But where I kind of want to pick up on all of this is where things happened as you were being awarded the medal. And what I love is your story about the back-to-back -back meetings with the president and then the commandant of the Marine Corps. And that I think you're, you, you were so nervous when you met the president. Yeah. The only time you were more nervous, though, was the next day when you met the commandant. Exactly right. Can you, can you tell us about that experience? Yes. Uh, of course, I want to go back up just a little bit because uh, I was so on Guam when uh, the notice came through that I was to be shipped back to the States. And uh, we had been, when we came back from Iwo, we completely changed our training regimen. Previously, we had just been trained to fight in jungle warfare type. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to start learning how do you fight in a city? How do you approach a house? How do you go through a window? How do you get through a door? And how do you go down a street in a column well, in a city? You know, uh, and, that, and that was obviously in preparation for the upcoming invasion of Japan. Uh, Kyushu is where we were going to be. Okay. Up. Yeah. But uh, we thought it was all going to be Tokyo. That's all we knew. Uh, we'd never heard of those other communities at all, you know. And uh, the only reason we know about Tokyo is because of Tokyo Rose. She talked to us about it every night. When, if you had a radio, we didn't, but they, they could put it over a speaker, and we all could hear it from the speakers nailed up in the trees. And Tokyo, and Tokyo Rose being the Japanese propaganda. Maybe. Yeah. And I mean, she, she told us where we were going. She, I mean, she had more information than we did. <laughs> Absolutely. So all of us thought, we're going to Tokyo. Well, they, uh, uh, the first sergeant called me to his tent, or sent a runner and got me. And uh, I went up to his tent, and he said, get in your khaki uniform. We had one set of khaki tans or uniform. And we had to, uh, every Friday, iron those so that we could stand a Saturday morning inspection. And you had to have your crease in your trousers and in your shirt, you know. In the middle of Marine. the Pacific. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're on Guam. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and, uh, he said, you're going to go see the general. And I said, why? I had never seen the general. I knew his name. But I'd never seen him. I didn't know who he was or where he was or anything. 
And uh, he said, well, I don't know. Just that's what they told me, go get your khaki. Uh, so I went with my tent and ironed my khaki out and got the creases all set and came back and they put me in a jeep and took me to the general's tent. I was frightened again to half to death because I didn't know why I was going to the general's tent. Usually you only go there when you're in trouble. Sure. Right? Sure. So I couldn't figure out what I had done that would require me to go see the general. Well, so when I got there, there was a colonel standing outside. His aide was outside the tent. And he had a door on his tent. We never did have a door on our tent. But uh, he told me. Well, at least me, you had a tent. <laughs> we had a tent, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we had foxholes dug beside every bunk. Mm-hmm. in the tent, so that when if uh, Charlie came over, we called the Japanese plane flying over Charlie, if Charlie came over and there was a possibility of being bombed, we'd roll out of our tent and roll into our hole right beside our bunk, but out, outside the tent, mm-hmm. uh, under the flap, you know. <clears throat> so he told me, gave me instructions, walk in, stand at attention, Walk up to his desk, stand in attention until he tells you what to do. Okay. I am scared to death. I don't know why I'm there. And I, so when I get there, he tells me I'm being called, recalled to the west to uh, the Capitol building, and my date of reporting there is October the third, and so on. And if he ever mentioned in his talk the Medal of Honor, I didn't know what it was. I'd never seen it. Never heard tell of it. Didn't know what the world the thing meant. <clears throat> I've made the comparison several times. Uh, Twenty years ago, if you'd said to me gigabyte, you wouldn't have known. I would have. I still don't know what it is, but at least I'm familiar with the word. Sure. Yeah. Well, at that time, I wasn't even familiar with the word. You know. So uh, he told me I'd been called back to Washington and. And he handed me an envelope with my orders in it, you know. And uh, so then he dismissed me. And I went outside, and the colonel was still standing out there. And, and uh, I had this big envelope in my hand. And he said, uh, on the back of that is, uh, is a, uh, a seal. Don't break that seal. That's a court-martial offense. Well, I turned and looked at it. I hadn't even looked at it, and I looked at it. And it was about the size of a silver dollar, mm-hmm. and it had the block letter E in there. And his name was Erskine. So that was his official seal. Okay. And uh, he, he told me I'd, I'd turn those into Hawaii when I got there. Okay, that's what I did. So <clears throat> anyway, to uh, finish your story, uh, when... Uh, we were receiving the medal on the White House lawn. There were 13 of us, uh, seven Navy corpsmen, and six Marines. And <clears throat> the medals had been approved quite some time before, like in August. Mine was approved in August. But they were not going to call you back from overseas combat just to give you this medal. They're not going unless they're going to use you some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the early ones, they did. You know, they sold bonds and went around over the country doing that. Right, that's the, the story of Ira Hayes and, yeah. and, and some of those. Yeah. Okay. 
But uh, with us, uh, there was no reason to call us back. So now there are 13 of us that have already been approved for the medal. Now we're all there at the same time. And, and were all of these recipients from the Battle of Iwo Jima? No. Okay. So Guam, Saipan, Iwo Jima. So mixture, you know. And uh, Navy Corpsman the same way. <clears throat> well, everything's alphabetical. Naturally, still alphabetical. So they started with the first letter of, you know, like the A's and went through. Well, I'm clear at the end, next to last, the last guy's name is Zimmerman. And so he's last, I'm next to last. Well, they call you up. You walk up to the president and you're standing eyeball to eyeball with him, you know, right cl very close. Mm -hmm. And they read your citation of what, uh, why you're receiving this medal that I had never heard tell of. I had never heard anything in the citation. Nobody ever came to me and said, what'd you do? Uh, somebody else wrote up all the words in the citation based on testimony of my commanding officer and fellow Marines. So I had no, had never heard those words. And I'm standing there listening to these words that make no sense to me whatsoever. There's some big words in there. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, at the time I didn't catch it, but later I caught it. Of course, they gave you the original citation eventually, signed by the president, you know. And there was one word about halfway through the citation, and it said he went forward alone. I didn't. I wasn't alone. I had Marines supporting me. I could not have accomplished my mission without Marine support. And apparently the good Lord was with me because they never touched me. In four hours of time, they shot at me with machine guns and rifles and threw grenades at me, but I was never touched. And uh, that'll make a believer out of you, won't it? Absolutely. There's gotta be a reason why I say I was saved and the guy right beside me didn't. You know, he lost his life. Why did, why did he have to go and I didn't? I don't understand that, still don't. So two Marines that, uh, that I'd selected to give me protection that day when I would be trying to get to a pillbox to get flame in it, uh, they sacrificed their lives that day protecting mine. And I didn't know them. I knew two of the guys helping me because they'd been in my squad, or I'd been in their squad. Uh, but the other two, I just, they were just Marines. And I said, you and you, come with me. And I told them what I want them to do. I want them to fire at the pillbox that I'm trying to get to to put some flame in it. You know? yep, keep their head down while, I'm, while I move up. Yeah. Just standard right. fire and maneuver. <laughs> so, uh, I didn't know that that had happened until years afterwards, that those two Marines had sacrificed their lives, and I didn't know who they were. And we didn't find out until the, about five years ago. We finally learned their names. I certainly don't remember the very end, the tail end of it, except for the final piece of Hell Week, uh, which was the grad portion. And I'll share the story. So we're cruising back. It's five and a half days into it. And the instructor gets on the megaphone and he says, 
Hey guys, I'm sorry to report, but you know, the class before, uh, two classes before you is getting ready to graduate today. So we got to roll you 24 hours to the right. And two things happened right then and there. One, my brain exploded because I was like, oh my God, another day. But at the same time, it told me right away, oh, we're at day five. It's Friday. Sweet. Because you have no sense of time. You only know the sun goes up, the sun comes down, and you start to gauge it by you eat every six hours. You have a new instructor staff coming in every eight hours. So you can kind of gauge it because you can't just walk up to an instructor and be like, hey, can I get a time hack real quick? It don't work like that in the military, you know. So you kind of gauge it off of that. But after a period of time of just your body going to complete mental and physical fatigue, you have no idea or comprehension of where you're at. But then that led me to, okay, we're at day five. And then you think to yourself, wow, I may get this far. And as you're thinking through this stuff, you're standing in front of the beach and the instructors, you know, he gets on the megaphone, he says about face, or I'm sorry, he says, uh, you know, interlock arms, you're about to get surf tortured. And so we're all standing there facing the ocean, day five and a half, you're getting ready to get in 50 degree water again. You don't want to- how, how many had dropped out at this point? At this point, I had no, I, no clue. I mean, I didn't even know what we started with and how we, um, I think we had, I know we started with like 180 some guys and I think we were roughly around between 30 and 40 people left. 180 to 100 to down to 30. We started day one of buds, which would be five weeks or four weeks prior to hell week uh, with 180 some people. And by day five of hell week, we were at between 30 and 40 people. Man, yeah. So that's, that's a pretty impressive number. Yeah, it's in, it's uh, yeah. I don't remember most of them going away. <laughs> you just you're like, what happened? Where's there, where's everybody? But we're sitting there, we're standing there facing the ocean, interlock arms, getting ready to get surf tortured again. Which is basically you sit in the water, you lay in the water, and you just let that cold water surge over your body and just chill you to the core. And I remember the instructor saying on the megaphone about face right at the fringe of the water. We turn around and there's nobody there. Just an American flag stuck in the ground floating. And right then and there, I knew my why. Why would they show us that? Like why there's no trophies, there's no medals, there's no, there's an American flag floating. And they showed us that because so many men and women have died defending our country. And that's all you need to understand is what you fight for. And I was so blown away by that. And I was like, wow, I instantly got my meaning and purpose, my why of why I was there. Because you don't know what being a SEAL is. You're in training. You know what it is to be a student. You don't know what it is on the other side. But I got my why. And I was ready to fight. I was like, I'm in. I'm 100% committed. That's not indoctrination. That is American spirit. And I was so proud. And then right behind that, all the instructors come running up from behind the berm, screaming and cheering. It's the last time that an instructor would ever cheer for a student ever again through the rest of training. So fired up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this? And you're so broken down. And the instructor, the commanding officer of Hell Week, or commanding officer of SEAL training gets on the megaphone and says, congratulations to you future Navy SEALs. Hell Week is secured. And of course, it's like, you want to jump to the sky. You want to get so fired up and excited. And you just realize that your body doesn't want to move another inch. And so you're like, oh, good job. 
where is my bed? <laughs> and then you go and you lay in your bed and you're like, I can't wait to close my eyes and go to sleep. And then you're just up for the next 20 hours because you're still fired up and you're like, but that was the most important part of that situation was I made a promise to myself that I would call my parents to tell them that I made it. And it was simple. I made the call and I made the call to my mom first. And I said, hey, mom, how you doing? And she said, oh my gosh, sweetie, um, I'm great. How, how are you doing? I said, that's a great question. Um, really tired, I'm exhausted, but I, want you to let, I wanted to let you know that your son made it through Hell Week and I'm not a failure anymore. And thank you for everything from the bottom of my heart because you and my father are the reason that I'm here. And that was the most rewarding thing. And I call that my spark. You see, I get emotional about it when I talk about it, because if you don't fight for something you believe in, then you're not fighting. You don't, you're not moving forward. I use my spark every time I need it to turn on the gas and fight as hard as I can possibly do. So it's not about the times that are great. It's about generally every day. Am I doing my absolute best? So I always refer back to my spark. Am I impressing my parents? Am I showing them that it's worth it, that I'm busting my butt. And so making that call to her, she started crying. I was an emotional basket case. I was like, Hey, gotta get off the phone before I completely lose it in front of my teammates here. I got to act tough, you know, <laughs> and then I called my dad and he had choice words because, you know, my dad was in the impression where he's a, he's a reader. And so he looked at the statistics seal training and he said, you know, it's an 85% attrition rate. And I said, well, I don't even know what that word means. So does that mean that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And He's like, dude, <laughs> you're, you got to get your head on, on a swivel. You have no idea what you're about to go up against. And when I told my father I graduated from Hell Week and that I was going to be a SEAL, he was beside himself. This was the first time in my life that I got to prove to my parents that I was doing something with my life. And it was the first time that I proved to myself that I could possibly be excellent. And what you find in time as being on a team is that the only reason that you're excellent or exceptional is because you are surrounded by it. And it's the, com the composition of the team that makes the team excellent. And each individual gives a little piece to make you what you are. So quite an amazing uh, time. The, the, the fateful night, you were on a mission right. in Afghanistan. Yes, sir. Take it from Take there. It there. So October 26, 2009, I was woken up about uh, midnight, 1130 to go on a, uh, we did 12 hour shifts as crew chiefs and pilots. We went midnight to midnight, or midnight to noon, noon to midnight. Uh, I was on the midnight to noon, so they woke us up at about uh, 11.30 because we had a mission that was going off at zero one. Um, and they briefed us. We were escorting two Army Chinooks for an insert for a high value individual. Um, and as the Huey and the Cobra, we were supposed to provide close air support over the top as they inserted the, uh, the two, all the guys for the insert. Uh, so, so these were special operations? Special operations, okay. FBI guys. I found out later there were some FBI guys on there, some special operations. Um, uh, after takeoff, we lost sight of our lead helicopter. Um, the pilot inside the helicopter, in our cockpit, was able to say we're blind, but unable to say that we're blind on lead um, over the radio, over our intercom. And by the time we had done that, uh, I heard, oh shit, from one of the helicopter, from the pilots, and then 
heard a, a meshing of metal. Um, the lead helicopter had gotten, I think that we got out in front of lead helicopter and then lead, when, when lead went to cross over, they ended up clipping us uh, at some port of our, of our helicopter and then we ended up crashing to the ground uh, from about 300 feet in the air. Um, when, we when we hit, uh, we ended up losing our tail rotor and our tail boom and then became a, just a fuselage. Um, and then when we hit the ground, I think I was thrown out of the helicopter. Um, and then it caught fire. It was burning. All the rounds were burning off and cooking off. And uh, I didn't really know what was going on. I was kinda, all I could hear was fire crackling, and uh, one of the pilots was screaming. I was calling for Flurry. I was calling for Jones, and nobody was answering me. Um, and then somebody came up and started moving me, and I started screaming. And I told him, no, 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 don't move me. My biggest fear was being captured alive. Um, but I was in so much pain, I think, uh, in my pelvis area that they were trying to get me out of there. Um, but they ended up did getting me out of there within six minutes of And, and who, who is they? Uh, the, so the two helicopters that we were escorting, um, they were actually, they saw the Cobra explode and then they saw our fire from our helicopter. So mission turned from assault to recovery and you know, life-saving a mission from there. Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the epitome of uh, um, a mission only survives the first right. round fired, or, yeah. or you know, the mission statement, if you will. Right. Um, so you woke up, you hear crackling, you know, and that's one of those things a lot of people don't even think about. You know, the, the ammunition, when it, catches fire and that's one of the things that the enemy is always going to go for um and that's what took down a lot of ships in, in world war ii was that um the ships would be uh, or, or the armor right. armory would be hit yep and that's what sinks the ship because the you know all the secondary explosions so did was that going through your mind that i mean oh my god i, I think i was I more get worried about getting hit by one yeah really honestly because we had uh 550 cal rounds and 1500 762 rounds. Uh, we didn't have any rockets, but we did have, you know, about 2,000 rounds of bullets. And, and a 50 caliber round, mind you, by the Geneva Convention is not intended for human beings. I mean, it, it literally can take someone and, and cut them in half. So, yeah, I can see where that would have been a little right. bit of a fear to you. What, I mean, you wake up and you, they're trying to move you, you're screaming because you realize everything's hurting. I mean, Describe all the injuries from 300 feet with uh, the fall. So I broke my right tibia fibia. Uh, I had an open book pelvic fracture. Um, basically, my, for males, our pelvis doesn't open up. Females, it does to allow the, you know, the passage of the baby. But mine had opened about five millimeters, which I was bleeding on the inside. So they didn't know if that was probably one of the other ways that... I was gonna pass away um, was just from in, internal bleeding. Uh, I blew out my left acetabulum. Uh, that's where your ball sits inside the socket of your hip. I had broke three uh, transverse processors on my back, two collapsed lungs, four broken ribs, and a broken shoulder, TBI. Um, and not a severe TBI, but a, you know, a bad enough head injury that you know still affects me to this day a little bit you think <laughs> i want to hear whether it's your first year last year whatever when someone asks you about carry the load 
how do you describe Memorial March, the event to them? Not everybody at once. Don't, don't, over, <laughs> yeah, right. don't overrun me here. Well, I can tell you how um, I had, I had younger kids and I know Todd, you've heard me talk about this before, but I always talk about understanding the loss uh, and, and carry the load, the actual Memorial March, obviously there's a lot that goes into it. So unfortunately it seems like the best way to, to experience it is to participate. Um, but I always, when my kids were younger, explaining death to a child is nearly impossible. And so you're trying to tell them, hey, we're out there honoring those who lost something that's so special to them. So I said, tell me what's the most special thing that if you lost, you would be so upset. And they're like, you know, young enough, they're like stuffies. If I lost my stuffy animal, I'd be really upset. I said, right. That's, you know, they, their biggest loss to them was a stuffed animal. So I made them put it in a backpack and carry that with them to understand what loss meant to them because I had to you know, put it in a child's mind and said, that's what these people feel, but they lost their loved ones and they're carrying them with them because it's, and it's important for us to honor them and carry, you know, to move forward by carrying, by carrying that with them. And so that's where it started. And, you know, going back to the very first year I had them draw up something. So my wife was kind enough to find someone, but like my daughter carried for, for the police and canine and we had it laminated on her backpack with their little stuffy animal and my, my son, hopefully you guys don't be offended, he cared for the US Army. You know, each year they would come up with who they were caring for, but it all started with just understanding that burden of loss. And then um, I think, you know, Todd, you and I have talked about this and then the celebration of life that came with it. Mm -hmm. And that it's a way in which we, again, the civilians who did not participate can participate and honor those who did serve and, and then gave us the ultimate sacrifice. Awesome. You know, Aaron, for, what about you? For, for me, I, I'm, I'm going to bounce around here a, a little bit, but uh, I've had to change the way that I have described the event to people. It, it's one, it's something that I'm so passionate about, and it's it's really easy to ramble on about. But years ago, uh, my my kids, uh, like Brad said, all my kids know of of Memorial Day is carry the load. So they 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 haven't really had any. Memorial days uh, without carry the load in their lives. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so my son, when he was eight, was interviewed by uh, WFAA and uh, he was eight years old and had walked 23 miles at that time. Um, and, and so when they turned to me, I said, you know, this is a, uh, it's a day to, to restore the true meaning of Memorial Day. Over the years, Memorial Day has morphed into uh, mattress sales and, and swimming pool parties and, and hot dogs. Well, I didn't realize that was going to offend so many people. So the comments on that WFAA video where somebody needs to call CPS for making his kid walk 23 miles. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and then and, go to school. And, and then go to school. And, and what's wrong with eating hot dogs and, uh, and, and, you know, having swimming pool parties on Memorial Day. So I, I've had to re, reformat my, my explanation and, and, you know, when I used to say all of the hot dogs and, and stuff like that, that's fine. Do that. But uh, really, Todd, you uh, helped me with a with a speech at one point that really called uh, called to order that it's us uh, from the, the Saving Private Ryan part that I think about all the time, which at the end of the movie, when he says, earn this, earn it. For me, 
I, I help, I explain it to people by saying, this is us earning it. You, you know, this is us carrying that load uh, for those veterans who can't carry it for us anymore. And it's, it's an incredibly moving event and, uh, and it's just an honor to be a part of. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Charles, what about you? You know, uh, it's, it's interesting. If, if you would have asked me that uh, in year two, I probably would describe it very different than, than it is today. I mean, uh, it, it, to me, now you have to say, first of all, it's a culmination of uh, a walk across America. You know, we've got, we've got four relays now that converge on Dallas as a, a, that, that starts and ignites the weekend of Memorial Day weekend. And uh, you have an opportunity to come here and, and recognize the sacrifice that's been made for, on, on our part for, from so many people. I mean, and, and it, it's not, uh, yes, we, we, we absolutely have uh, soldiers, sailors, first responders that are on the line today but uh, you know there are those that uh, you know last year, last decade, you know, back in the, all the various wars and uh, and dates that uh, have sacrificed for for us to get where we are today. And it's a, an opportunity to 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 now honor and think back about. Uh, uh, how we got here and who sacrificed for us. And uh, it's meaningful for those scouts. You know, we, we start out the weekend by putting out our field of flags. Oh yeah, the so powerful. And, and it, takes, it takes hours and hours and hours and a lot of uh, blisters on your thumbs. And what we say is every flag you put in that ground represents the life of somebody who gave their all so that we can be here so we can enjoy our freedoms and uh you know that's the that's the right way to start that memorial day weekend the first week of june 2011 a guy named jack first calls me up and i'd met him through a a, a creative session with the boy scouts and he said, do you still have that little crummy airplane? And I had a, a, a Baron and he said, can you fly that down here? I need you to meet this guy, Clint Bruce and Stephen Holly, because they walked around a pond uh, that year, 2011, and he wanted a national- White Rock Link. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so I showed up down there and uh, met Clint. Stephen wasn't there, met Clint, at his uh, facility where he has a house. He was teaching people how to protect themselves and whatnot. And uh, I'll never forget it. Jack says, you got five minutes. I want a national event. My, my background, of course, is doing global events, uh, Olympic torch relays, all sorts of crazy stuff. Live Earth, Live 8. Debbie, Debbie told me to mention all this stuff. Oh, I, I, and, don't uh, worry. You, you yeah, may gloss over I, I'm just saying. I'm coming back to it. Uh, okay, so, but anyway, then that fall, Clint says, hey, there's this guy, Coleman Ruiz, who was a lieutenant commander, Navy SEALs, was going to retire that fall, and he said, Jack, you need to have Coleman work with Dill, 
And uh, that fall, Coleman's first day of, you know, being retired, he shows up at my office in Atlanta and off we go on the, na- you know, the national relay. Um, so wait a minute, that, that was the day he retired? Yes, the day he retired. Was he the had, day you stepped off? No, no, no. The day he came, well, we, no, that was in the fall. We planned, okay. we would step off May 1st, 2012 from West Point Cemetery. And we, we actually had four different routes the first year, but we, uh, we didn't have the money to do them. We're now doing all of them uh, 10 years later. But uh, yeah, and um, unbelievable. And then the other key, <clears throat> excuse me, the other key point of that first year was Stephen and this guy, Pryor Blackwall, shows up. It's pouring down rain in Tennessee, middle of the night. rain storm. Oh, God. It was raining cats and dogs. And here comes Stephen and this guy, Pryor, uh, who had, a, it, it was hilarious. And they walked that entire night. Smitty, I don't know if you were there that night when they when they showed up. Were you, were you there? Yeah, you and I were walking when they showed up. And yeah, it, it was, was crazy. I mean, yeah. I'm talking, it was raining as if a fire hose was pouring on you. And yeah, uh, it was it was Forrest Gump rain. I heard it, it was Forrest Gump rain. And I, and I heard that Smitty, if I if I remember this correctly, you were wearing some really cool shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I got so much grief for those my first year but you know that really spoke to we didn't know what we were doing that much and i showed up in vibram five finger toe shoes and <laughs> man did i pay the price in blisters oh my gosh okay so so you know you kind of mentioned this already dill and i was going to ask this in a very uh, sarcastic way but what made you so qualified to put something like this together Oh, gosh. Well, I, I was blessed to do events all over the world for 40 years. And, and in 2011, um, we were in the process of selling our company. And I'd worked in about 80 countries. And uh, I, I really don't know. I, I think God just uh, said, hey, Dill, you got one more cool thing to go do. And I never thought that for five years I would walk like Smitty. The first five years, I think I walked 600 miles a, a year. And I was from, that was from 60. I'm 70 now. So 60 to 65 years old. And man, we have stories. Oh, my gosh. You know, you're, you're out there. You're just you had a route. You know, we're very good at logistics. I wasn't a military person, but I was I worked all over the world where I do my events. They always call me the general and uh, that's my other nickname. And, you know, it's like we get stuff done and that's what, why I think Jack recognized that. And the next thing you know, and a, a guy named uh, uh, Doc Pershing is the guy that knew Smitty and all these guys. He was an emergency room uh, doctor from up there in uh, Wisconsin. And he lined us up with the guys and right, Smitty, off we went. And we just, yeah. we, ha- we put our heads down. We knew we had to do stuff. We knew we had to get it done. And it was, there was never a moment in our uh, first year that we thought we wouldn't get there. How has this, how has this journey, this 10 year journey, because that's really truly what it is. 
And when you and I, you know, first got to know one another, um, this organization looks very different from that point to now. So how has Stephen Holly changed? You know, I would, I would tell you that, um, you know, 2011 was, was within three or four years of getting out of the Navy and getting in the commercial real estate business, focusing on raising a family, uh, you know, back here in Dallas that, and I think we've talked about this and I've talked about it, uh, but, but there was a transition there that it was, um, you know, personally with a family five, you know, at that time it was a couple of kids into what is ultimately now five, but, uh, being very happy at home, being very happy, um, you know, in my marriage and, and thinking professionally, I was very happy. I was at a phenomenal company, uh, learning a business that, that, um, you know, learning, learning a business that, I, that I'd always wanted to get into. But at the same time, there were some underlying issues that, um, there was something that wasn't quite fulfilling. Yeah, there wasn't, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, during that transition, I thought, you know what, if I can hit this number compensation wise professionally, then things will be, things will be all right. And then when that number came and there was still that, there was a hollow feeling there. I, I thought, okay, maybe it's this number and not that those numbers were, were any big deal, but it, it, I figured out that there was something else going on there. And, um, it was through, you know, I really miss being in the Navy. There was something there's there a professional satisfaction that came from wearing your nation's uniform and, um, the friendships that existed. Sure. And, and ultimately the, there was a, I always tell people there was a level of adrenaline there that you can't really match as a, a civilian unless you're doing something illegal. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I, thought. I don't know what you do in your off time, but, but in, I, I don't know the, 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 so there was a lot of different components to it, but, um, I really missed it. And sure. I actually, at one point in time, I, this was probably 2010, maybe, maybe 11. I sat down with Molly, my wife, and said, what, what would you think about going back in the Navy? And she, we talked through it. She was, ultimately, she was going to be supportive of, of what we thought was in the best interest of our family. Mm -hmm. And I sat down with a good friend of mine who I was, he was the pastor at uh, the church we were at at the time. And he's still a great friend today, uh, Richard Ellis. And I, I was talking to Richard about that decision. And he said, well, let me ask you a question. What what made you get out of the Navy? And I may have told you this story before. Mm -hmm. But he said, what made you get out of the Navy? And I said, I wanted to I wanted to focus on being a dad, being a, being a good husband, raising a family. And he said, so has that priority changed in the last three or four years? And I said, no. And that ultimately kind of got me reset on, um, you know, that being the ultimate priority to 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 uh, having some fulfillment. And in that's a very that's a very long answer to your question, but it was about that time that we started working on carry the load. We had this event, 
Uh, we raise money for these other nonprofits, both <clears throat> military, veteran, first responders. And it was through that effort of raising that money and being able to uh, give that money away that, that scratched that itch of being able to continue to serve. Sure. And so it was, it was a, you know, not that all those issues went away, but it was a big transition for me to being able to turn the corner and settle in, for lack of a better term. Uh, so being able to scratch the itch of service to be above self kind of put it on hold. It didn't, it didn't, I mean, knowing you, it didn't completely eradicate that, that need. Um, you know, and I, I tell people all the time, you know, they, they ask me if I miss the Marine Corps and I say, you know, I miss it every day, but I don't miss one day of it, you know, because it's, <clears throat> there were some hard days. Um, but you know, for all the reasons you mentioned, you know, it's the camaraderie, it's the, uh, the adrenaline rush. I mean, you know, and, and, and I want to you know prepare you. I want to talk about your, your friend, you know, Brian Bourgeois here in a minute. Um, you know, fast roping out of a helicopter, you know, that, that's a rush that you can't get at the job now. No, but you know, <clears throat> making sure that at the center of everything we do, we went in, and while it may not have been our primary motivator, it ended up being service above self. It ended up being a greater cause than ourself. You, it sounds like you were still missing that. Yeah, I, I think a greater cause, yes. But just as important to that is the, the commitment and the loyalty you have to those guys you were serving with that, that for me made it really hard The the, um, the first seal that died in Iraq, I believe it was August of 06. And I'd gotten off active duty, um, just before that in 2006. And, and in my mind, there was some, um, there was some mental calculus of, of, you know, having done a few tours through Iraq and, you know, predominantly serving with, with guys on the West coast over there. Um, although we'd had guys that were, you know, blown up in IEDs. We had guys that were shot, but no one had died. And for whatever reason, that first, you know, um, Mark Lee's that finding out that he had died, um, in Iraq, it just, the, the just something, flipped in my head and there was a lot of there was a lot of um I wouldn't say it's guilt but there was a lot of desire to be back um with those guys that I've been serving with because they were continuing to operate over there and um so you're, you're hitting on something so that, that but oh, hold on I had to, but so it, it is service to something bigger than yourself but it was really a loyalty that I felt that I'd you know there was some betrayal there for having gotten out. And that's exactly where I want to go with this, because I, I think um, that is the, the great tug of war for each individual who is married with a family inside of the military, because you have this, this commitment to these guys to your left and right. But you got a commitment to the people at home. And that's a struggle. 
you know, and, you know, just like you went to, uh, you know, to your pastor and, and, you know, I think he asked a great question. Um, you know, is that still, you know, what, what you are, uh, trying to achieve, you know, being that great husband and father. And one thing I'll, I'll, I'll say there, I, the guys that a lot of the guys that I serve with were, you know, their third, fourth, fifth, sixth platoon, however, however long they'd been operational, a long time. And a lot of them were married with kids. And so I, what I'm, what I'm not saying right now is you, those guys didn't have their families as their top priority. That's, they absolutely did. They were just able to, they were able to manage it in a way that I oh yeah couldn't see myself well wh- whether it. you're whether you're in day to day or you're missing it and you're out of the service now that tug of war is going to exist it's yeah. going to exist for a while because you know one of you know our motto in the Marine Corps and I shouldn't say motto but one of the things that people used to like to say was God Country Corps those are your priorities and I have thought about that many many times and. I used to think, well, where does family fit into that? You know, because you can't, you can't exclude family from it because the family is, is really the backbone of the Marine Corps. Right. And I always struggled with God, country, Corps. Okay, where does family fit into that? I'm not really sure. Maybe it's part of God. Maybe it's part of core because, you know, it, it, that's the family. Um, but, I mean, what you're talking about, again, I, I, I see – in retrospect, I have seen so much of that personal tug of war. I have this responsibility to these guys, but I have this responsibility to these, you know, these people that uh, I'm either related to by by marriage or blood. And so, ultimately, you decided not to go back in. Um, and I'm just going to ask you point blank: Do you regret that decision? No, I, I, I you know, hindsight being what it is. You know, at at that point in time, we had two kids, and again, it was only two of the now fire team reinforced Holly. Right, and and now, you know, we added three more there, uh, in pretty quick succession. Um, but I think that that was that was, you know, God's way of telling me that the decision you made was was for me the right decision, and we were blessed with. Five beautiful, healthy kids, and um, you know, a phenomenal wife in so many ways that are Im- immeasurable. Um, you know, and, and her support and, and the things she's done for me over the years. So it was absolutely the right decision. Okay, so fast forward. You know, you made the right decision by not going in, but yet you miss it every day. Um. How did that, how did that uh, uh, transfer itself into some of the personal challenges that, that you've had? I mean, you knew that, that not going back in was the right thing. Did any of that, the, the fact that you didn't go back in, though, did any of that contribute to some of the personal challenges you've faced? And a lot of those challenges are challenges that, that we help people with and carry the load. Mm-hmm. I mean, I realize I'm not asking a pointed question, but yeah, it's it's a major topic. <clears throat> you bet. Um, before I go, before I go directly to your question, I'll also to put a bow around the previous question. As I'm sitting here thinking about it, you know, the, you, you like to think you had an impact, 
that time in the Navy, you can point to things you were involved in that had a larger impact. And, and that's a part of missing the opportunity to be in those types of situations. Hindsight, looking back over the last 10 years, I think through the impact uh, that Carry the Lotus had, and again, I, me being a very small part of it, but being involved in this organization and looking at the impact across the country with these nonprofit partners and these families and, and those that these nonprofit partners serve, you know, the thousands and thousands, however many people that that, that, that impact uh, has had, that for me is God's way of telling me, yeah, you did some really great things and fun things uh, that were very in, in, impactful in, in you know your time in the SEAL teams, but but I think they're the breadth of the impact over the last ten years has really solidified that it was the right decision to get out.